They help train medical residents, review safety measures, evaluate hospital equipment, and help design clinical trials. Who are they? You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Beverly H. Johnson, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Institute for Family-Centered Care in Bethesda, Maryland, and co-author of the book, Privileged Presence, Personal Stories of Connections in Healthcare. Ms. Johnson, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to have a chance to talk with you. Tell us, what are family advisory councils? Family advisory councils really provide a structure for patients and their families to share their perspective of what is working well and what is not working so well in the healthcare system. It brings together consumers, if you will, their expertise, their unique perspective that they bring to provide a voice and ideas to hospital and community-based physician practices to really try to improve things. How did these councils begin? They actually began initially, I would say, over 20 years ago. And they began initially in hospitals and they began in pediatrics, and it was really families caring for children with special needs that said, we want a different kind of relationship with our health care providers. Some of our children are spending so much time in the hospital, and we think if we could work with you together, we could learn how to take care of our children and bring them home. And we had invested a lot in technology in hospitals and we could save these children, but we hadn't invested in building the kind of relationships and support that would enable them to take their children home and care for them. So that was really the beginning. And what we've learned in more than two decades is it's so important to get this kind of advice to pair it with the advice of clinical professionals and administrative leaders it's not just a phenomenon in pediatrics anymore. It's really for both adult and uh, pediatric care. What led to your interest in this area? My roots were originally in pediatrics, and I'd worked with the Children's Hospital here in the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., many years ago. And I think I'm a, a change aid from deep in my bones. And uh, I had the opportunity to introduce new programs and start new programs. And I can even remember to this day what the room looked like when I was meeting with a group of families. Their children had a variety of different conditions, uh, spina bifida, cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, cancer. And I was so struck in the conversation with these families that they managed the care of their children really a tremendous part of the time. Yes, they were helped by caring and smart well-trained clinicians, but they had so much expertise, and across all those different conditions, they had a lot in common, more in common than was different. And I began to realize that if we partnered with them, we could design and implement better programs from the beginning that would be very useful. And at the time, the Children's Hospital was located right in the middle of the inner city, and Many of those partnerships helped guide how we implemented new programs, and they just were so much better because of tapping into the wisdom of families. And what wisdom have they exhibited? Having 
education in family advisors part of a process. They keep you grounded in reality. We sometimes think we've done what they want or need, and often we have a more expensive solution. I think a major way that they can help us, and it's such an important part of assuring quality and and safety, is how we communicate effectively. How do we share bad news with them? How do we share information that we think is useful, but they may not think is useful. So having a a council where you can talk about the data you get from surveys or focus groups, those are good ways to find information about the people you're serving. But if you think about a focus group or survey, it's a one-way flow of information. And if you can have a dialogue with patient and family advisors about the experience of care and what was useful about the process and what was not, then you can really learn from it and design a better system. Um, They gave us concrete things that people would come in and not introduce themselves. So it's hard to be a partner in your care if you don't know who's talking with you. They helped to see the importance of sitting down and listening to what their concerns were first and even writing down their concerns gave the families confidence that they were part of the process and not just passive recipients of care. They helped us. I remember in the olden days, we used to call people by number in the emergency department waiting area. And by having them tell people what that felt like, it dehumanized the experience and almost gave them permission not to participate. What percentage of hospitals have family advisory councils in place? I wish I could give you an exact number. It's really growing. The momentum is, I think in recent years, it's growing more than it did in the first 10 or 15 years. I would say that there are between 500 and 1,000 hospitals that have these types of councils in place, and we see a growing number of community-based physician practices also developing councils as an important way to assure quality, and really redesign systems of primary care. I think that's one of the most important developments in the last five or six years. In addition to councils, uh, many hospitals and community-based practices are putting patients and families on key committees, creating a variety of ways to hear the voice and, and capture the perspectives of patients and families. So they're serving on patient safety committees, on If you're building a new primary care clinic, it would be great, and many of them now put three or four patients and families on the design planning committee. Certainly hospitals are doing that now. They're involving them in teaching residents and medical students about communication, so they're sharing those faculty roles with professors of medicine and nursing even. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Beverly Johnson, the founder and chief executive officer of the Institute for Family-Centered Care, discussing family advisory councils. Ms. Johnson, what feedback are you receiving from hospitals that have family advisory councils? The feedback is incredibly positive. It is scary for people at first, 
I always feel sad for hospitals or even primary care practices that wait a long time to develop a council or to invite their patients and families to serve on some of their committees. I think they're initially afraid that they're going to lose control, that they're going to be asked to do things that are unreasonable. Everyone in healthcare today is, it's not an easy time. People are a bit discouraged and feeling like they're trying to do so much with not sufficient resources and a system that doesn't work well. So the idea that you would bring patients and families in and have them work side by side with you and try to make changes and improve the system of care, you know, even let them see your quality data, that's kind of scary. But when you help people understand that patients and families with all the experience we've had for more than 25 years in this work, they're not asking for unreasonable things. They are bringing an important perspective. They take some of the burden off of the administrator and the physician's the nurse leader's shoulders in trying to solve the problems in healthcare. They bring new ideas, a fresh perspective that is helpful. And our experience has been they're not asking for unreasonable things. They're actually asking for a lot of what professionals have said, but they say it in a way that has greater meaning because it's grounded in the experience of care. What feedback have you received from family advisory council members about their experience? Again, the response is consistent and overwhelming. We are grateful to have the opportunity to give back. It feels good to us to make a difference. We've worked with all kinds of people and all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds and educational backgrounds uh, who have served as advisors on these councils. You know, whether they've had, if they've had a good experience, they are very grateful and they want to make sure that everyone has an equally good experience and even a better experience. Those who things when they haven't gone so well, even individuals who have been harmed by the system where medical error has occurred. I've worked with many people on various councils and committees where they have volunteered their time to come back and help make the system safe for other people. How are members selected? The selection of people, we think it's important to look for people to serve on these councils and committees who can share their stories so others can learn from them. So what I mean by that is that they can see a bigger picture. They can share their story, and yet they can see it in the context of lots of people who might be receiving health care. And they can share it in a way where they can share both the good things about the experience and those things that did not work well in a constructive manner. Uh, We suggest folks that, because this is really a collaborative process, this isn't advocacy, this is bringing lots of different perspectives together and trying to come up with the best solution. Patient and family advisors, like healthcare professionals and, and others in the healthcare system, have to be good listeners. They have to hear other people's perspective and try to put that together. The main caveat that we say really doesn't work very well on these councils, I guess there are two. One is that if the individual is really angry, this may not be the time in their life for them to serve in a group that 
trying to put a collaborative process in place for improvement. So we recommend really listening to those people and learning what they have to say, but they're not going to be helpful in that kind of group process. I think, uh, Susan, the other is if an individual has only a single agenda that they are interested in, if they're going to be part of a council, usually whether it's in a primary care practice or a hospital, the agenda is going to be broader. So, again, they might be great on a very defined task force, but the council needs to have a breadth of interest and not just dominated by one person's single agenda. Ms. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss family advisory councils. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.